I'm outraged that we are in front of the home of our current Secretary of State, former ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson made his millions by poisoning entire fence line communities in Houston and across the world. We already know that the Republican right is accustomed to operating on two tracks. That is to say, when they come out against government spending, they're coming out against government spending for people like yourself or myself, not necessarily for themselves. And I think that that particular hypocrisy will continue to reign even as the floodwaters slowly recede. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, your show for voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, when counter-demonstrators showed up wearing masks and helmets to counter neo-Nazis in the KKK last month in Charlottesville, it was the first time that many Americans had seen anti-fascist activists, also known as Antifa. But listeners to On the Ground are familiar with these activists who started sounding the alarm about the so-called alt-right on this show more than a year ago as they protested the neo-fascist organization, the National Policy Institute, headed by Richard Spencer, which held meetings here in D.C. twice last year at the federal Ronald Reagan building. Later in this show, we'll be hearing the largely untold story from these activists who were on the ground in Charlottesville about the deadly violence that day, the night before, about the controversy over their confrontational tactics, and their perspectives on the dangers of the neo-fascist movement today in the United States. Also, our geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn is back in the house with us today, and that is always a good thing. So, as always, we have a jam-packed hour for you, starting with our headlines. This week was a week of marches in and around D.C. On Monday, about 3,000 diverse religious leaders and some congregants participated in the Minister's March for Justice, walking almost two miles from the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial to the Department of Justice. The march, organized by the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network, marked the 54th anniversary of the historic March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom and King's I Have a Dream speech. The Reverend Marshall Hatch of the New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago addressed the crowd at the DOJ and compared what's happening in D.C. to a fairy tale. Now is the time to lift the voices of faith. Someone has the calling. Someone has to accept the assignment to halt our nation's descent into the slippery slope of fascism and racism. And somebody has to have the courage that the little boy had in the nursery rhyme to remind the country that this emperor has no clothes. Pardoning the sheriff convicted of contempt of court and racial profiling, this is not normal. Press briefings from the White House untelevised and filled with misinformation, this is not normal. 
threatening nuclear war and rumor of war by president by tweet is not normal refusing to condemn racism and anti-semitism is not normal somebody has to have the courage to stand up and say this emperor has no clothes on thursday several dozen activists marched to the home of secretary of state rex tillerson in the calorama section of northwest dc where they held a vigil to honor victims of hurricane harvey and to condemn the Trump administration and the fossil fuel industries for what organizers said is their role in turning Harvey into a human catastrophe because of the dual agenda of blocking action on climate change and gutting public agencies. Rachel Goldstein, a member of the climate action group Sunrise DC, spoke in front of Tillerson's residence. Houston sort of acts as a microcosm for environmental and climate injustices perpetuated by fossil fuel companies. Um, we need to hold these people accountable as they gut our public health and environmental safeguards. Other organizations participating in the march and vigil included 350.org, 350 DC, the Hip Hop Caucus, Rising Hearts Coalition, Interfaith Power and Light, the Working Families Party, Green Latinos, Resist Here, and many more. And a group of activists marching 118 miles to D.C. from Charlottesville on the march to confront white supremacy were nearing Culpeper, Virginia on Thursday, singing, chanting, greeting supporters who beeped their horns and passing by roadside hecklers. Some carried signs that read love over hate and Black Lives Matter. One marcher, Mike from San Diego, said on Facebook Live that he was marching for his family and against Islamophobia. Felt like I needed to represent my own sort of group of people. I'm uh, the son of immigrants. My parents came to this country for school and, and not in any sort of refugee situation, but definitely the recent Islamophobia, recent racism against people from that part of the world. You know, I want to try to make this place, uh, this country, a better place for my boys, my three boys. In culture and media, a major exhibit of art that speaks to American society and race is on view at the University of Maryland until November 26th. Journey, the artistry of Curly Raven Holton, is a retrospective of the work of Holton, a painter and master printmaker, and features portraiture and an exploration of archetypes, race, and colorism. I caught up with Holton at the opening reception on Sunday. My story as an African-American is a relevant story that needs no apology. And I can present the work in its range of complexion, range of colors, and inner family dynamic. There's a painting called Colorstruck, and this is about a family having issues with identity and complexion with an African-American community. So piece in the uh, show about struggling and being uh, uh, the victims of poverty and how one is frightened and believe that there's going to be some object that's going to liberate them from their fear. So it is that story, but it's not just my story. The show fills the arts program gallery located on the lower level of the College Park Married Hotel and Conference Center. Holton says that he wants the show to cause viewers to think about the ways that society can be a trap. You know, if you become aware of the prison you're in, you got, we're all in it, in a prison then you can undo the door, the cell door, if you recognize that you're in one. So I'm saying we're in one, and I'm trying to take mine apart. Are you trying to take yours apart? 
The show is Journey, the Artistry of Curly Raven Holton, and it's on exhibit at the UMUC Arts Program Gallery until November 26th. And finally on Sunday, several dozen people met at Malcolm X Park in Northwest D.C. for a community celebration of the life of Dick Gregory. And we'll end our headlines and happenings this week with the sounds from that gathering, which was a drum circle. And when we come back, fresh from Texas, Gerald Horn joins us. Stay with us. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Everam, and now we turn to our geopolitical analyst the author and activist professor gerald horn who is also as we know a professor of history and african-american studies at the university of houston which experienced flooding on some of its campuses and is said to reopen tuesday he's joining us today in a place of safety in arkansas on the way to atlanta so, Gerald, given your proximity to the uh, still unfolding aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, what kind of impact do you see this disaster having, not only in Texas and Louisiana, but beyond? Uh, and I guess you might even actually, before that, have your own story to tell about what you experienced. Well, I was monitoring the media very closely on this past Monday as the waters were rising. And I noticed that the media was repeatedly telling people to shelter in place, although they hadn't sheltered in place. They had come out to man or staff their battle stations. So I started surfing the web. Fortunately, I had electricity and internet and then started monitoring Twitter. And I noticed that there were safe routes out of Houston. And I took one of those safe routes to College Station, Texas, and then got a flight to Dallas and a flight to Little Rock. And... I guess the moral of that story is that obviously one should pay attention to what the authorities are telling you, but at the same time, I guess you need to take what they tell you with a grain of salt, because if I hadn't taken that initiative, I might still be in Houston uh, trying to fight floodwaters. Now, with regard to the impact of the storm, it's unclear. 
certainly hoisted on his own petard has been Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who in the aftermath of Sandy a few years ago in the U.S. Northeast, railed against government aid to those who have been victimized, but now has come with his begging bowl to Washington, demanding aid for those along the Gulf Coast, particularly his own Texas. Likewise, there is a debate that's quite useful that has emerged about whether or not climate change played a role, not necessarily in instigating this particular storm, but in worsening this particular storm. Certainly, there's a debate within Houston with regard to the lack of zoning, that is to say, building on floodplains, right. for example, uh, building on wetlands, which makes it difficult to absorb water after you pave over wetlands with concrete. And certainly, there needs to be a larger debate about the environmental elements that went into this catastrophe that is still occurring as we speak. Just following up on some of those things that you just said, the disaster is so complex with these issues of climate change and what looks like unbridled capitalism's lack of zoning, you mentioned lack of resources being put into human needs, and lack of corporate responsibility. I was just watching a report about explosions at this flooded Arkema chemical plant that made me draw some parallels with Fukushima. There's going to be several anticipated explosions. You know, there's been at least one and there's going to be more. And they have, they've just decided just to let it happen. And it's because these chemical units weren't able to be kept cool because of the floodwaters. And it just made me think that there was no regulation, there was no requirement that would mandate that these corporations have like, you know, foolproof backups, not just say, oh, we had a backup that failed, but lives are on the line, you know, our environment's on the line. And what are you keeping your eye on in this disaster as it continues to unfold? Well, let's underscore the point you made about a lack of regulation. Obviously, there is an anti-federal government mania in the state of Texas that's embedded deeply within conservatism generally. And now that floodwaters are rising, some of those same folks who are beating the drum against the government are basically demanding that the government step in to help to rescue them. I think it's very important to try to understand where this anti-government mania comes from. And I think it ties in to another major story from August 2017, and that, of course, is the tragedy that unfolded in Charlottesville, Virginia, with the marching of Klansmen and neo-Nazis, and with the implicit attempt by President Trump to make a moral equivalence between the Nazis and the Klansmen and those who were protesting against them. Keep in mind that at issue were these Confederate statutes, and those statutes were enacted in the aftermath of the U.S. Civil War, as we all know, but what the media has not necessarily focused on is that one of the reasons that there's so much fury in Dixie to this very day about the Civil War and about slavery is that the slave owners were not compensated. Let's not even talk about reparations to the formerly enslaved, but unlike the British Caribbean, Jamaica, Trinidad, etc., where the slave owners were compensated. They were not compensated in Dixie. It was one of the largest appropriations of property without compensation in the history of the world. 
And if you want to make people furious and angry, well, you take their property without compensating them, particularly when the former property, speaking of the Africans, are walking around these neighborhoods and in the eyes of the right wing acting cheeky and impudent about the matter. This leads to a fury against government generally, which presided over that expropriation of private property without compensation. And I dare say you cannot begin to understand the fury against the federal government in particular without understanding the immediate aftermath of the U.S. Civil War, which not only marked the rise of the statutes to Confederate so-called heroes, but also mm. led to an acceleration of anger against the formerly enslaved, basically because they represented not necessarily a lost cause, but a lost fortune. And you fast forward to today in Texas, a former Confederate state, and you still see this anti-government mania, which obviously has become counterproductive when there is a desperate need for the government to play an aggressive role as the floodwaters continue to rise. It's so interesting you talk about the former slave owners seeing the formerly enslaved walking around and you know taking umbrage at that because I think one of the better commentaries I, I read in the aftermath of Charlottesville talked about how, you know, those people who talked about who talk about the statues in terms of heritage and their history almost ignore the fact that for African Americans walking around those statues, it represents something very different. And it kind of is there is this symbol there of not only the Confederacy, but of white supremacy and of terror and torture and all these things being celebrated on the statue that we have to walk around. There's another point, too, which is that in the last 24 hours, and hopefully this is not a trend, a lawmaker in Georgia threatened a black woman fellow lawmaker in Georgia, suggesting that if she did not stop railing against these Confederate monuments, that she might wind up missing, he says. In the state of Missouri, a lawmaker in the last 24 hours has suggested that those who are railing against Confederate monuments in the state of Missouri uh, might find themselves hanging from the highest tree. So terror has not deserted us in 2017. And in fact, we should draw a very strong lesson from the point that the descendants of the Confederates are adamant about these statues not being removed. So as an historian, you know, because a lot of these statues weren't erected right after the Civil War, but they were erected during the height of the kind of real terror, like after the birth of a nation, like in the early part of the 20th century. And during that time, also, there was another great flood that impacted African Americans living in the South. And I'm wondering, as you look at what's happening right now, do you draw any parallels between that time? And But I know that there was not a good response from the federal government to help the African-Americans impacted. Well, there was a great flood in the 1920s that particularly afflicted Southern Louisiana. And in fact, it led to a number of blues songs that were laments about black people drowning as mm -hmm. the waters washed them away. But I would also draw a parallel with the point that in August, 1917, black soldiers in the city of Houston, Texas, rebelled against Jim Crow and began shooting up the town. It led to one of the largest uh, trials in terms of military history, with many of the soldiers being executed. 
that particular episode continues to haunt Houston. And I would also make the point that some of these Confederate statues were actually not only erected as rebuke and a slap in the face to black people generally, as a direct result of anger over the end of slavery, but also as a direct rebuke to black soldiers in particular, because it was recognized in Dixie that black soldiers were the decisive element when the so-called Confederate States of America went down to defeat. And then black soldiers continued to play a militant role up to and including Houston, August 1917. So that is a story that's still with us because recall that a number of military chiefs reprimanded President Trump after he tried to draw this moral equivalence between those who were seeking to keep the Robert Lee statue intact and those who were seeking to make sure that it was torn down because the military remains heavily dependent upon black and brown soldiers in particular. And I think that the military chiefs were well aware of that, which is why they took that extraordinary maneuver of rebuking their commander in chief, as did, by the way, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who also is aware that in terms of upholding the banner of U.S. imperialism abroad, the United States is very heavily dependent upon these uh, black and brown soldiers. So that is something we still need to contemplate in 2017. So... I think it was on Wednesday, <clears throat> Trump made an appearance in Missouri, I believe, talking about his tax plan ideas, not really a concrete plan. And it made me wonder how these plans of his to drain the swamp or cut government you know, to the size that you can drown it in the bathtub, uh, how that will fare now, given the fact that there's obviously going to be a heightened need for government assistance in places like Houston and in Texas at the same time that he wants to cut the EPA, eliminate programs like environmental justice, and basically give more of the public treasure away to corporations and give a large amount of money to the military. Well, I would like to think that the hypocrisy of the Republican right has been discredited in light of Hurricane Harvey and the flooding and the thousands of homeless and the scores of deaths, which, by the way, will be rising exponentially as firefighters begin to open up these half a million cars that have been abandoned in the floodwaters. But we already know that the Republican right is accustomed to operating on two tracks. That is to say, when they come out against government spending, they're coming out against government spending for people like yourself or myself, not necessarily for themselves. And I think that that particular hypocrisy will continue to reign even as the floodwaters slowly recede. Now, you just mentioned Charlottesville, and we actually haven't spoken on the air since you know Charlottesville happened. And this week, a second man was arrested in connection with the group attack on DeAndre Harris, an African-American teacher who was among the counter-protesters that day. And so I'm, I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about the, the legal aftermath of Charlottesville? Well, one healthy aspect of the aftermath of Charlottesville is the internal debate within the American Civil Liberties Union. Recall that it was ACLU lawyers who went to court on behalf of the Nazis and the Klan and helped to foil the attempt by the city authorities to enact reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions that would have separated the protesters from the counter-protesters. 
The debate in the ACLU has centered around the fact that they were actually defending people who were pledging to come armed, which they did. And now the ACLU, as I understand it, is going to try to move away from lending their legal skill and talents to armed right-wing protesters, which it seems to me is a good thing, even though, of course, there are others in the ACLU who say that the Second Amendment, from their point of view, guarantees the right to bear arms and that the right to bear arms should not be prejudiced, even when the arms are in the hands of neo-Nazis and Klansmen. So it's healthy that the ACLU is reexamining their position, and uh, there have also been a, a number of uh, op-ed pieces uh, in the U- U.S. newspapers critiquing the ACLU position on free speech. And I think that that's also healthy because this is a time where we really need to rethink many concepts in this country. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves floating into the abyss. That whole issue around defending the free speech of everyone was like one of the things that I like remember from like journalism school and remember that the ACLU, like even back in the 40s, I mean, these these cases that set precedent for freedom of speech, they were often built on the fact that right wing protesters were defended and that allowed protesters who were on the left to also protest. So I do know that the First Amendment has been defended and the right to protest has been defended on the right and the left, and it's helped both. But I think what's what's happening, as you mentioned, is that now the freedom of speech issue is being combined with the right to bear arms issue. <laughs> and maybe the ACLU should have looked a little bit more carefully at the permit that so so that the groups could have remained separated. Well, it's not only that, but in terms of the historical sweep, the ACLU did not necessarily stand tall, at least some branches in the 1950s, when the rights of communists and Marxists came under attack. Many of the branches tended to fold like a cheap suit. And so this militancy on behalf of defending the ultra-right seems ever more curious in light of that recent history. I do want to ask you about beyond the U.S., because we've been talking about so much happening domestically, but at the same time, the Trump administration is continuing to give mixed and threatening signals to North Korea and Venezuela. And this week, Germany told the U.S. that it would like us to take our nukes off their soil. So what are you watching internationally right now, things that might be little-known news that people should definitely pay attention to. Well, certainly Germany is critical. The elections are coming up, and Chancellor Merkel is expected to prevail, but the Social Democrats are putting up a very stiff challenge to her continued rule, and many on the left in Germany have been in the forefront in terms of calling for removal of U.S. nuclear forces, from their territory, and also raising an alarm about a new Cold War that's erupting with Russia. Uh, I think we mentioned on your program the fact that in July 2017, there were these extraordinary military maneuvers in the Baltic Sea, not far distant from Germany, featuring not only the Russian Navy, but the Chinese Navy. 
which had to sail a long way, obviously, to get to the Baltic Sea. And I understand that only recently that the Trump administration has retaliated against Moscow by expelling Russian diplomats from the consulate in San Francisco and from other consulates as well. So there's tremendous pressure from the right, the neocons, and even some Cold War liberals in the United States to launch and ignite a new ice age, if you like, with Moscow. And right now, they seem to be gaining strength with every passing day. Well, Gerald, we'll definitely keep an eye on Germany and all these other issues that are happening day by day. I've been speaking with Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, author, and activist, professor. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And for your listeners in Atlanta, allow me to say that I'll be in Atlanta this coming Sunday, which I believe is September 3rd at the Auburn Avenue Library at 3 o'clock. And of course, you can put those details into a search engine to get the precise coordinates. Right. And you have a new book, The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News and the New Jim Crow Paradox. That is something we'll definitely get back to the book in coming weeks. Well, great. Uh, I look forward to that. All right. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. For this segment, I want to talk to some folks here in D.C. When counter-demonstrators showed up wearing masks and helmets to counter neo-Nazis and the KKK last month in Charlottesville, Virginia, it was the first time that many Americans had seen anti-fascist activists, also known as Antifa. But listeners to this show are familiar with these activists who started sounding the alarm about the so-called alt-right more than a year ago as they protested the neo-fascist organization, the National Policy Institute, headed by Richard Spencer, which held meetings here in D.C. twice last year at the federal Ronald Reagan building. So many of the anti-fascists on the ground in Charlottesville came from the Washington, D.C. area, and three are in the studio with me today using pseudonyms because of the attacks they have faced in this political climate. Welcome to On the Ground, Vincent, Nico, and Amy. 
Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, I want to start with actually being on the ground in Charlottesville and the events that did not make the news. Uh, Vincent, let's start with you. In the way that the Friday night march has been characterized as though um, as though even though the march was filled with this Nazi hate speech, you know, blood and soil, that it was just a freedom of speech march that was peaceful. <laughs> but what did you witness from the Nazis and the police on Friday night? It was not peaceful. When I saw that line, that huge line of all, almost all entirely white men in matching polo shirts and, and khakis chanting, you will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, blood and soil, it was one of the most terrifying, possibly the most terrifying things that I ever saw. They were claiming their power, they were claiming their space, and immediately what they did is they marched around students. Students with a banner that said, uh, that was UVA students against white supremacy, members of the community, they surrounded them, yelled at them, white lives matter. You know, there was a yelling match back and forth, black lives matter, white lives matter. That was incredibly short, because very soon, the, the Nazis and the KKK fascists uh, attacked the students and with torches. They, they swung them. They, they moved in. They claimed the, stat, the space around the statue. It was a small group of students, only, you know, maybe 20, 30. Uh, and, yeah, the, the Nazis came in, pushed them out. After that, you asked about the police. They left after a little bit, like maybe 10 minutes went by, and then they, and then they left. And at that point... A line of cops, they lined up, and they said, now, this is an unlawful demonstration. And they started moving across the, the space with look, they looked like, you know, if we touch you, we will arrest you. Uh, at that point, the Nazis were out. So they were doing this to the students, to the local community members. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, we ran the sound from inside the church Two weeks ago, the people who were meeting at St. Paul Memorial Church, Cornell West, Reverend Tracy Blackman, we ran the sound from inside the church, the service that they were having. And you could hear them toward the end of the service talk about there are people outside, you know, use a different exit, don't walk by yourself. There, there was real concern. You could hear the real concern. Uh, there on Friday night, and I, I really haven't seen that aspect of the protest really yeah. put out in the media. Amy, oh, sorry. Yeah, and now, Amy, I understand that you witnessed the group attack on teacher DeAndre Harris, and this week there was a second arrest in that attack. Can you tell me about witnessing that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I think it's, it's a really important, it's incredibly important to understand that what happened in Charlottesville was not just this one terrorist attack that we witnessed. Uh, there were many acts of terror that happened starting that Friday night. I'm glad that you brought that up and continued well after um, the car attack that we witnessed, and that was one of them. Mm -hmm. And um, what about the police presence during that? One of, the, one of the reports I read said that this attack happened right across the street from a police station, but no police intervened or uh, he had to rely on his friends to come and rescue him or he, he said he would have been killed. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what I witnessed myself. Uh, it was directly across, just slightly catty-cornered from the police station. There were police everywhere, and they were not coming to his assistance. Did anyone say, please help, you know, come over, you know, come and help? There's a man being 
attacked or <laughs> they were there um they were right there and and witnessing it we had two medics mm. on the ground with him and uh i think that we were all more concerned with his um his safety and his um his health mm-hmm. now nico i understand that you worked as a medic in charlottesville and amy you also worked somewhat as a medic also so tell me about that experience um i guess helping people right after this car crashed into people well it started amy and i were together and we we just heard a very loud sound and then we looked down the street and all of the people turned around and it seemed like they were going to trample us but they stopped shortly after and when we got there I saw I, I've I've been medicing for some time now. I went to I went to J20 as a medic, I and then Charlottesville, and I've done a couple Black Lives Matters uh, protest as a medic. But I saw some truly brutal. I, I'm trying to refrain from saying curse words. No, you can't. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we want to keep our license, but right. restrain yourself. But but uh, the first thing I saw was another medic holding someone's leg, and then uh, he had wrapped gauze around this person's leg, and then as he opened up the gauze to see the wound, I saw a bone, and the man's leg was damaged very badly. But Amy and I continued on until we found someone who had no medics around her, this 13-year-old girl who had been hurt. And uh, who had been hit by the car, mm-hmm. along with her sister, uh, she was there, and then I believe her cousin also mm-hmm. was hit by the car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all of them young, all of them under the age of 18, the girl was hysterical, as she rightly should be. She was just hit by a car. Mm-hmm. And Amy and I sat with her until the paramedics came, which was 15 15 yeah. minutes later mm-hmm. and she was one of she's from charlottesville this young yes, young this young girl right yeah. right okay and, and she was with the peaceful protest too the car plowed through the completely peaceful part of the protest these were just black lives matter protesters that were accumulating down uh what was the street Water and Fourth, I believe yeah and they were just marching and the car plowed through indiscriminately hitting anyone and it was shown when we were treating the 13 year old girl it was shown that they just really didn't care right and I think she she asked you she talked to you and she wanted to know why this person hit her just, yeah yeah it, it, and it, among that she also told me that she couldn't go to the hospital because she couldn't afford it it was a very difficult situation for mm-hmm. me and amy Wow. Yeah, I think that we want folks to to know that that this this little kid, this thirteen year old girl, the two main things that she was saying to us was that she was concerned about being able to afford going to the hospital. When we finally got her on the stretcher, I was holding her hand and um, she looked at me and asked me if the person ran her over because of the color of her skin. Mm-hmm. And it was a very it was very chilling right yeah. when she said that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, these incidents that you're talking about, and, you know, thank you for sharing, 
they weren't not, they weren't shown as much as shots that showed a clash between the Nazis and anti-fascist protesters. And I think that in a conversation I had with you, Vincent, you mentioned that some of the footage that is being looped repeatedly on, on the air has been doctored, that it's not all from Charlottesville. Yes, <clears throat> yes, it's not all from Charlottesville. So there was a there was a 2020 episode that I've noticed a lot of the footage is is being replayed from, and that 2020 episode actually it it spliced in images that were not from Charlottesville with images from Charlottesville. So, for example, we saw they showed images of people wearing all black uh, in what we call black block breaking windows at night. None of that happened in Charlottesville. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. All right. I actually haven't seen seen that, but that def, def, definitely would be a, a mischaracterization of what happened. So, but, so the, 2020, the 2020 story, actually, <clears throat> they, they already had their story. They were going to air it, and it was before Charlottesville happened. And then Charlottesville happened, and then they put all this stuff from Charlottesville into the story that they had already created. Last minute. Yeah. Okay. They spliced right. in Charlottesville yeah. at the end. Yeah. And it also creates this massive false equivalency between anti-fascists and the Nazis. Right. Yeah, it's important to know we're talking about people who want genocide, mm -hmm. who want ethnic cleansing, White who supremacy. believe in, in slavery. Right. Yeah. That's what we're up against. And who have a supporter in the president. Right. Right. So, you know, the, I want to unpack that a little bit. I know we don't have a lot of time, but, you know, we can we we're making some good headway in our discussion. <laughs> the you know, one of the things is that I thought about is that in this society, people are so steeped in these traditions of nonviolent protests. You know, we're still in the aftermath of the legacy of Martin Luther King, which made that kind of like kind of like the standard bearer or the gold standard for protest and it's really hard for Americans to really accept that any other type would be pro would be successful and I think also that the Antifa movement in Europe they had a lot more hands-on you know direct experience with dealing with like you know people in power who were Nazis and the the real need to challenge them in the very beginning stages on a, on a physical level. People don't really have that here. But I think you made a point to me that that many of those fascists were inspired by slavery from the United States. Yeah. So right, right, you know, the United States has a long history of white supremacy. And yes, uh, Hitler studied... He was, he, was, he, he was personally inspired by slavery and eugenics. Um, you know, there was a big eugenics movement in the United States. Um, of course, anti-Semitism was big both in the United States and in Europe. Right. And then the other issue that's come up this week, of course, and any of you can respond, is that there's been kind of like a, a, a lot of response to an essay that Chris Hedges wrote, where I believe that uh, having, you know, looked at some of the media on both sides, uh, some people feel from the Antifa movement that he's being critical of any type of protest that would be violent because it allows the state to kind of repress. It allows uh, people looking at it to say, well, who is the bad guy? I don't know who the bad guy is, and people aren't used to that in this country. Uh, who wants to take that? <laughs> I think that I'd, I'd like to say that what's really important, I think, in this in this conversation is that I believe that a lot of times when people are using the word violence, the word that they are 
meaning to say is defense, and um, I believe in self-defense and in community defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had, um, so the clergy members who were on the ground, there were many clergy members who spoke out saying that Antifa saved lives. Cornell West went and said that Antifa saved lives. I mean, at the very least, we saw that with medics, but pe- but people were saying, you know, they went up against as nonviolent practitioners and we're not prepared for the bats and the shields and the clear intent of Nazis to to commit violence. I mean they demonstrated that throughout the weekend and um, and we're grateful in the end that Antifa was there and we we take a defensive stance and sometimes think and we put our bodies on the lines and sometimes things get it's not for the squeamish (laughs) but yeah I mean absolutely I'm I'm incredibly proud of of us and of the people who went down there to to be a real barrier. I mean, I, I think for me the question is always, all right, if you want to see a nonviolent movement succeed here, then make the nonviolent movement. If if you're only criticizing and not doing work on the ground, then I don't want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And you know, diversity we- of tactics too. I mean, we need uh, we need at least some variety because. Uh, I have a couple quotes here. One from Frank Frisson, a Holocaust survivor. I'll I'll tell you that. No, no, no. I'm just saying, speaking to the mic. Um, And it's, if fascism could be defeated in debate, I assure you that it would never have happened neither in Germany, nor in Italy, nor anywhere else. And then there's another one uh, from, actually, Adolf Hitler who, when he rose to power, he's, uh, he was interviewed and he said, only one thing could have stopped our movement. If our adversaries had understood its principle and from the first days smashed with the utmost brutality the nucleus of our new movement. I think we need to understand that just talking and debating or writing some sort of edgy article and putting it on social media isn't enough to actually stop systemic white supremacy isn't actually enough to stop the real threats that is fascism Mm -hmm. and we need to recognize that you know uh, we're running out of time but I did I don't want to get off the air without mentioning J20 and the fact that I believe that uh, 200 people have felony charges uh, from that day and these are people who were Celted kind of grouped together by the police and there were uh, there were mass arrests made and they weren't allowed to leave and Mm -hmm. I know a lawsuit has been brought since then uh, because the police apparently um, made people strip down they did a public cavity searches and you know people felt like they were basically being raped by the police and some of and I know it's very complex because there were a lot of people out there that day, but some people are confusing uh, Antifa with the people who like necessarily like broke the windows at Bank of America. You know, they're they're saying you know they're kind of grouping all these people together, and so did the police. You know, and they don't really have any proof of who did it, but everybody's kind of arrested in this group way right now. So I'm sorry, you know, we um, I really loving this discussion and we're going to have to follow it up again because what we're talking about is not going away and the discussion and the issues aren't going away but I'm glad that we were able to at least have this much of a discussion today and um, that will about do it for today's show I want to thank my guests Vincent, Amy and Nico from Antifa DC for joining me today thank and you that, very much. Yeah, and that will and that will do it for today's show 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Keep raising your voice. Peace.